Stories from the Honky Moon Cafe, written and read by Barclay Johnson. Peter Sackville's Vest. Peter Sackville was a vision of sartorial elegance. In a finely tailored suit, white shirt and silk tie, he would take a seat in a quiet corner of the drum, use his newspaper to preserve his isolation, and when he had finished his half of bitter, he would leave. Other than his appearance, he was noticeably unremarkable. But when an ambulance had been seen at Coppice Cottage, my interest was alerted. It was chance that I was passing Peter's cottage just as someone was leaving. Her uniform reminded me of a district nurse, so when she beckoned, I obeyed. She asked me if I was local. Did I know Mr Sackville? Explained a little of the injuries he had suffered from a fall. And did I know anyone that could call in just to see if there was anything he needed. Of course, I said, and she presumed I was volunteering. I entered a very plain hallway, called out Peter's name, and found him on a daybed in his front room, in surroundings that were a stark contrast to his usual elegance. We sorted out a shopping list and I returned later with everything. Thinking that was that, I turned to leave as Peter suggested he would see me at the same time the following day. Caught off guard, I nodded, to which he mumbled that I shouldn't tell anyone, as he didn't want any do-gooders making his life a misery. Each subsequent day I was determined to make it my last. The nurse, when I saw her, sympathised, but it was no compensation for the thankless duty I was performing daily. One morning I'd had enough, and I began telling him so. Seeing his expression, I relented, and suggested I would get others to help. Only me, he told me, and how dare I let him down. There was a bit of an argument, and I left saying that I'd see him all right until the end of the week. He was what he was, but at least by keeping himself to himself, he inflicted less irritation on others. I could find nobody else. Nevertheless, I let myself in as usual, determined that it would be my last visit. Peter was not on the daybed, but sat at a table by the window. On the bed was a jacket, which I presumed he wanted me to help him into. It was a fine-looking jacket which was no surprise, and I told him so. "'It's yours,' he said. I pointed out that he was not the stocky figure that I was, and that what might fit him was unlikely to fit me. "'Try it on,' he said. To my astonishment, it fitted perfectly. The style was traditional without being old-fashioned, my taste exactly in style and fabric. "'Where did you find it?' "'I made it,' he said. I looked closely at the four-button cuffs, the lining, the cut of the lapels. All superb. You made this? I asked, to which he nodded, and then pointed to the door, suggesting I look in the adjoining room. I felt as if I walked into the cutting room of a West End tailor's. Table, machines, mannequin, rolls of fabric, brown paper patterns, including newspaper and magazine cuttings, featuring Peter with celebrities who, I presumed, were wearing his tailoring. Back in the front room, he suggested I sit. I did but not before carefully removing the jacket and replacing it on its hanger. He then clutched my hand and was overcome with emotion. After we had shared a cup of tea, Peter collected himself and began telling me his story. His first job after leaving school was with a renowned firm of West End tailors. After six years, when the owner died, he moved to one in Shepherd's Bush. Four years later, the area was redeveloped, so his third place of work was run by a dubious character in Wandsworth, who went bankrupt. Peter moved to Richmond, 
where he was made head of alterations in a department store where he treaded water for 17 years, being superseded by those climbing the ladder over and beyond him. Times had changed, and there was no room for his craftsmanship. Like the cutting table he had started his life working on, he was now just a piece of furniture bearing the cuts and bruises of accident and misfortune. At a stage when he was looking forward to his retirement, the department store, like so many others, was taken over and the alterations department was closed down. A local agency without workers would do all the work and Peter was put on their books. They paid little, gave nothing towards any expenses incurred and expected the work to be done immediately, if not sooner. With a small pension and some redundancy, he bought a good second-hand machine and dedicated part of his rented flat to his tailoring a description that was rather too grand for the trouser-shortening and waist-expanding that was most of his work, but he was content. He had not much money, no family, no property. He loved no one, and as far as he knew, no one loved him. His only brush with romance was with a fellow machinist while he was working in Richmond. His attempts at courtship had been pathetic and clumsy, and he had vowed never to embarrass himself again. But he had his work, and that was his love. Each turn-up and every expanded waistband was a joy to behold, if one bothered to look. We all crave something that will be a lasting proof of our existence, and Peter was no different. He asked the agency if they would let their customers know who it was that had so expertly altered their clothing. The agency's reply was curt. The customers weren't interested in who did the work, only that it should be done quickly. Peter had an idea. No matter how small the job, it was worth doing. As long as the garment existed, so would he. Every piece of fabric that passed through his hands, even his own, would bear a small, pale blue label witnessing the fact that Peter Sackville, Master Taylor, had something to do with it, owned it, altered it, repaired it, shortened it, lengthened it, took it in, or let it out. It brought a spring into his step. He had the confidence to enter his local pub to converse on equal footing. Asked what he did, he would proudly reply he was a West End tailor, retired. He returned one afternoon from the agency, ashen and stumbling. He had delivered fourteen pieces of clothing neatly pressed, and each one a perfect job, as it always was. But this had not stopped the agency telling him he was no longer wanted. Furthermore, they had contacted every agency and business known to them, warning them not to employ on whatever basis Peter Sackville, Master Taylor. They cited some legal obligation that he had contravened. They accused him of trying to undermine their business, trying to steal work from them, and they had spread the word he would never work in the rag trade again. A few weeks later, Peter was arrested. An arson attack on the agency's offices had destroyed the building, a man's vest had been soaked in paraffin and pushed into the company's letterbox. Part of a small blue label was recognised by the owner, and it was that evidence, along with his being let go and holding a grudge, that led to Peter Sackville, Master Taylor, being put behind bars. It was not what Peter wished to be remembered for. It is difficult without experiencing injustice to understand the effect that it can have. Peter, once optimistic and gregarious, became suspicious and private. His trust in people had been destroyed. In prison, he had tailored several suits for the governor, and it was he that found Peter his cottage in our village, on the edge of the Blythe estate. I would only wear my new jacket for special occasions, 
one of which was Dave, the landlord's birthday, and it coincided with one of Peter's infrequent visits. The jacket always attracted compliments, and at last I had the opportunity to point out the man responsible. Peter was reluctant at first, but the desire to demonstrate his superb craftsmanship was too strong, and soon his reputation as a tailor made him a valued member of our village community and far outshone any shadows from his past. Not only does every garment display his bright blue label, but a brass plate affixed to his cottage door proudly announces that Peter Sackville, Master Tailor, now lives there and is open for business.' 